I extend my thanks to our choristers this, this morning. One of the things I'm sure we all miss not being able to come together for worship is uh, the music. It's not quite the same when we're live streaming and uh, you don't hear the harmonies and the sounds that are so beautiful when we can be in the sanctuary or uh, even next door uh, in the Mullen Life Center with our rejoice service. So thanks all our choristers who come out and add to our worship each week. Our second lesson this morning comes from the instructive little book, The Epistle of James. I'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let us continue to listen for the Word of God. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect able to keep the whole body in check as with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can guide their whole bodies or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more. Can salt water yield fresh? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your word this day and apply them to our own living so that we might be your obedient and faithful people. Through Christ the living word we pray. Amen. There is a great deal of interest in our day and age, and it's an appropriate interest, a noble cause, and that is trying to clean up our environment, trying to rid our rivers and streams and oceans and the very air we breathe from the pollutants, the carcinogens, the toxins that we carelessly dump into our nature and into our earth. And as I said, this is an appropriate, a noble cause because our God has entrusted the care of the earth to us. We are the stewards of the earth. We have a responsibility for its cleanliness and handing it on to future generations. And yet there is one pollutant that we largely ignore in our time and in our culture. And in many ways, it is a greater threat than the toxins we put in the earth that foul our air and our water. And it is probably more problematic and threatening for the present and future generations than any other pollutant 
that we could think of. And it's old as the hills. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent deceives Eve and when Adam fails to answer a direct question that God addresses to him. And if you haven't figured out what this pollutant is, it will be no mystery for you to learn that it is the corruption of human speech, of language, of the words we use day in and day out. Words that are often used to deceive, to mislead, to divide, to evade. It is the erosion of honest, candid, constructive communication the inability or perhaps the unwillingness of people, even people of faith, to say what they mean and to mean what they say without using confusing, ambivalent, deceptive, hurtful words. Can we be honest? Can we be truthful with ourselves and others? And why is this such a concern for the people of God? Well, you can read about it in the Scripture from beginning to end. Words matter. They matter to God, and they ought to matter to God's people. The words we use to communicate with others, whether they are written or spoken or sung, express our feelings, our convictions, our ideas, our opinions. They have a power and an importance that we often overlook to our own peril or to the peril of our neighbor. Many of us probably grew up saying that childhood maxim, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt, up, hurt me. We may have said that to someone who bullied us or lied about us, only to turn aside in our private moments to tears and shame, because we know that words do hurt us, and sometimes more than sticks and stones. The abuse may not be as visible, but it's sometimes far deeper and takes longer to heal. So words matter. Words have the capacity to bless or to curse, to move the heart and mind and soul. Words can make us laugh or cry. They can cause us to fight or to fall in love. Words have the power to create and to destroy, to produce faith and doubt, hope and despair, trust and suspicion joy and sorrow, to express practically any human emotion or conviction that is imaginable. And we tend to treasure those people who are gifted in forming words that speak to us and often speak for us. And sometimes when a writer, a composer that we have loved passes away or dies, we are somehow diminished ourselves. I remember I was uh, influenced by C.S. Lewis in my earlier days, in my later days too, and I missed his death. Do you know when C.S. Lewis died? November 22nd, 1963, the same day that Kennedy was assassinated. So the death of Lewis didn't make the press, but when we learned of it later, we realized how diminished we were as a people of faith to have lost such a stalwart in the Christian tradition. For you, it may not have been C.S. Lewis. It may have been Theodore Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss, thinking with, with his desk, what will our children hear and read? Or I remember how my wife no longer read the newspaper when we were in an earlier state, an earlier time in our ministry, when Irma Bombeck died because she loved the articles daily from Irma Bombeck. 
I've even seen grown men who almost reduced to tears when they talk about the loss of Louis Grizzard, the humorist from Georgia. So we appreciate people who have a way of speaking and talking that, that speaks to us and speaks for us. So words matter. They matter greatly. And they ought to matter to us as the people of God. There is something called the ethics of speech. The use of words that are not only worthy of God, but worthy of God's people. We heard this morning a portion from Leviticus, a part of what is called the holiness code for the Hebrew people in chapters 17 through 26 in the book of Leviticus. And it spells out actions and rituals and morals that ought to characterize the people of God who are called to be holy. That is to say, not overly pious, but people who are set apart for God's purposes. Our speech ought to reflect that we live by a different standard when it comes to our communication and our speech. These chapters in the Holiness Code remind us of the importance of loving our neighbor in both our speech and our action. We are not to be a slanderer. We're not to be a tale-bearer, as some editions of the Scriptures put it. And even in this section of the Scripture, we have that word that was picked up by Jesus. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the standard for people who are set apart for God's purposes. So we are to speak to people the way we wish people to speak to us. We are to speak of people the way we want, wish to be spoken of. So our words matter significantly. Well, then, if words are so important, if they're so powerful and influential, if they can help or harm, if our language should be worthy both of God and of the people of God, what is it that determines their worthiness? How do you measure when our speech is appropriate and godly? There are some measures that I would suggest to you this morning. I don't know that this is an exclusive list, but certainly it ought to apply. And to begin with, we start at what matters so much, especially in our day and age, is that worthy words are true. We're speaking the truth. There's no place for lies or falsehoods or deceptions or unfounded or harmful rumors in the life of the people of God. No room for malicious gossip, the spreading of rumors. Indeed, the telling of truth and the valuing and protecting of truth is so important that it's one of the cardinal requirements of the Decalogue. We are not to bear false witness against our neighbor. Lives have been ruined marriages destroyed, homes broken up, businesses crushed, and nations imperiled by people who refuse to speak the truth. President Andrew Jackson, he and his wife were both uh, victims of malicious gossip about them, and he later wrote about that incident. He said, the murderer can only take the life of the parent and leaves his character as a goodly heritage to his children, while the slanderer takes away his goodly reputation and leaves him a living monument to his children's disgrace. This is to suggest that destroying a person's character is little different from taking that person's life. So the first requirement for words that are worthy, for ethical speech as the people of God, is that our words must be true. 
true. Nothing does greater damage to the bonds that hold people together in a marriage, in a family, in a church, in a nation as to discover that we've been deceived, we've been lied to. And when that happens, the people who lie to us can no longer be trusted. Their integrity and their character have been damaged and they are forever suspect and incapable often of leadership if their words cannot be trusted. Presidents have been destroyed and impeached over this. Doesn't matter whether they're Democrat or Republican or Independent. We saw it with Richard Nixon in the Watergate affair. We saw it with Bill Clinton in the Monica Lewinsky affair. The crimes were bad enough, but what the American people could not forgive or overlook was the fact that their president looked direct into their eyes and lied to them about involvement. So words that are worthy of the people of God, of any person in leadership, is that it must be true. And these people must be com committed to telling the truth. In a second sense, words that are worthy of God and of God's people ought to be candid, genuine, honest, sincere, or frank, however you want to put it. Sometimes the truth can be used in such a way that it's not really candid. It conceals, it distorts what's being said. So the truth at times can be disingenuous in that it is lacking in candor. And while on the surface it might be literally true, it is said in such a way as to conceal. And that is why partial truths or half-truths, vague truths are little different from, from lies, if you will. We're acquainted with this in, the, in politics and in the media, that sometimes the truth is so told in such a way or reported in such a way that it actually confuses or misleads the reader or the listener. I remember back during the days of the Vietnam War, it was revealed that the American forces had invaded a neutral country of Cambodia. But the Pentagon said, oh, this was, this was not an invasion, this was an incursion, an incursion into Cambodia and Laos. But if you go look up incursion in the dictionary, you see there's not a nickel's worth of difference between an incursion and an invasion. It's just incursion sounds less egregious, if you will. And most Americans didn't even know what an incursion was. So it was reported in such a way as to actually conceal what was actually going on. It happens all the time. We choose words that obfuscate. And there I've done it myself, see? To obfuscate means to not be plain and clear in what you're trying to say. I saw a t-shirt one day that said, eschew obfuscation, <laughs> which is a denial in fact, saying exactly what it, uh, illustrating what it is against. Of course, we have a long history in this country of using euphemisms to kind of uh, candy coat a hard truth or a difficult truth in warfare civilian casualties of war are sometimes referred to as collateral damage as if that's any better the defense department for a while referred to people who survived bombing attacks as interdiction non-succumbers 
That means they survived somehow the bombing raid. Closer to everyday life, we have ways of kind of softening a hard truth. We say people passed away rather than they died. We say a person makes a mistake or they, they err. They don't sin. In his book, Strictly Speaking, Edwin R. Newman, the late and wonderful NBC news reporter, wrote this during the Watergate era. Watergate, in the course of revealing so much else about American life, revealed the sad state of language. Apparently, form and substance are related. Language used to obfuscate, there's that word again, or to conceal or dress with false dignity is not confined to politics and did not burst upon us for the first time with Watergate. In our time, however, it has achieved greater acceptance than ever before so that stiffness and bloat are almost everywhere. I wonder if Jesus foresaw this problem that could develop in human speech. And while one day when he was speaking of oaths, he says, just say yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. So words that are worthy of God and worthy of God's people are not only true, they're not only candid or open and uh, genuine, but in a third sense, and in a most important sense and perhaps the most difficult sense, our words are to be loving, loving. And the love here is agape, the love that works for the best welfare of the other person. So using your words in, a way that are, in ways that are benevolent or a blessing to other people, Agape always looks for honest opportunities to build up the other person. And our words can be true, they can be candid, but if they're not spoken out of love, they can be inappropriate as well. And that is why Paul writes and says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Christ who is our head. So truth and candor have to be matched with love. And you and I could think of all kinds of things that could be said to other people. That they may be true and they may be candid, but they're not very loving. Oh, since you put on so much weight and bought that orange dress, you look kind of like a pumpkin. Well, that may be true and it may be candid, but it's far from loving, isn't it? I had a professor in seminary who said, we should always tell the truth, but we shouldn't tell the truth always. And what he meant by that is while we can only speak what is true or should, unless that truth is serving some benevolent purpose, then we ought to refrain from speaking. Maybe that's just an expansion upon what our mothers taught us when we were growing up or what we learned in kindergarten. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. The words you speak ought to have a benevolent, loving purpose. And what does this say about gossip? Uh, some of you probably thought I wouldn't mention this, hoped I wouldn't. Why is it that we are so drawn to gossip? Just to have a little piece of dirt on someone else. It's kind of delicious. We're in on the know. And we love to spread that. Why? What is it about the human condition that makes us want to spread that? Do we think somehow it will lessen our crimes or make us feel superior to someone else because we are acquainted with something inappropriate, illegal, immoral that they have done. 
Sometimes people defend their gospel by saying, oh, this isn't gossip. This is the truth. I know this to be a fact. What they don't know is the meaning of gossip. Gossip doesn't have anything to do with truth or fiction. Gossip is simply idle talk about other people and their affairs that in some ways damages their reputation or their good name. So gossip doesn't have anything to do with whether the fact is true or not. Are you building up the neighbor or are you tearing them down? I'm sure you've heard the expression before, what goes round comes round. It's certainly true with gossip. There's a Turkish proverb that says, whoever gossips to you will gossip of you. And I think that's true. I read a fascinating article several years ago by Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. And he explained something in Jewish tradition, in Jewish culture, I'd never been aware of before. He said that in Judaism, it is morally wrong to spread negative information about others, even if it is true. The term in Hebrew is Lashan Hara. It literally means bad tongue or bad language. Unlike slander, which is universally condemned because it's false, it's not true, Lashan Hara is true. It may be the dissemination of accurate information, but because it will lower the status of the person to whom it refers, it's considered unacceptable. It's called a negative truth. A negative truth. The only illustration you need of this is to just to pay attention to 98% of the political ads on TV, where the purpose is to damage the character, mis- mis- lead the intentions of the opponent it's not intended to share with you the character and the intentions uh, of the one who's uh, sponsored the ad but rather to attack demean and discredit the neighbor the apostle James was fully familiar with the power of negative truths with the power and the peril of the human tongue and he addresses this in our New Testament lesson He says the the tongue is like the rudder of a ship that controls where the ship goes. The tongue is like that. It controls us unless we control it. And he says that the human species have have tamed every wild beast imaginable, but the one thing we seem incapable of taming is the human tongue. We can't police our own speech. In a day and age when language is politicized and polluted, When people think they have the right to say whatever they want to say, wherever they are, despite the consequences. In a day when primetime television is filled with speech that is immoral, violent, vulgar, we may be less capable of taming our tongues than at any other time in human history. It seems like the only thing that might matter with our speech is being politically correct. I'm not opposed to being politically correct. I think we should be sensitive to other people and how we speak. But frankly, I'm much more concerned about offending God than I am about offending others when it comes to my speech. And so it seems to me from Scripture, we're called upon to be truthful always, to be candid, and to be loving to the very best of our ability. Our words do matter a great deal they can bless or curse they can help or harm they can honor God and God's people or they are 
to be something less than honoring of God or of others. One day Jesus told a crowd, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and then goes into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this is what defiles. For out of the heart will come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. So may God help us to watch our words and our actions. And may God give us the grace to try to use words that are always worthy of who we are and of whom we serve. Let us endeavor as disciples of Jesus Christ always to be truthful and genuine and loving when it comes to how we speak and how we relate to others. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.